moving on, Gerald, into the, the topic of procedural movement, I was hoping to have Jeffrey Ventrella on this evening as well because he's, he's written a lot about a variety of, of procedural movement methods. But if you were to give a kind of personal definition, because there doesn't seem to be an exact definition of what procedural movement is, what would you say procedural movement was to a kind of buy it alive listener? I'm not sure. Uh, that, uh, that's why I didn't really want to attack the subject right away, because uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what the meaning of that is. I mean, when, when you talk about spore being procedural, I think um, the word referred to how the, uh, how the, the creatures grew and how the, you know, the spatial structures were put together, that, that was procedural. That, that was my impression. I thought, you know, how would, how would you define uh, procedural movement? I mean, it's, it's either always procedural or it's never I don't understand what the, what it could mean my use of the term actually came through kind of spore and prior to spore as it exists in the game development community and again I think care of Eric Burton and potentially others in the biota conversations mailing list the definition was more tightly tuned associated with procedural animation but the idea is that rather than having a pre-programmed set of movements or attaching balls to people and then filming them and seeing how the interactions can kind of map back in a very, you know, we have this data now make, make the stick figures do exactly what the balls are doing when they're attached to people. Rather than doing that, creating a, a series of, well, the possibility of algorithms, almost like, uh, almost like genetic programming really associated with kind of joints and movement and then seeing how that plays out. But really... I don't want to say it's just genetic algorithm related. I mean, the underlying ideas, and this is, comes through Jeffrey's primary work as well, don't necessarily have to be genetic, but there is some kind of interactive set of functions that one can establish associated with joints, and this doesn't have to be bipeds or even octopeds or even creatures with legs at all. This is just a series of, of algorithms that can be applied to kind of ball and stick socket joints and general movement, which are not, you know, not solely in the kind of genetic algorithm realm, but could be as, as a component. My thinking with regards to what you do with Darwin at home, specifically the, the kind of tintegrity movement, is the probably one of the more primitive implementations of procedural movement in terms of the fact that you have a sinusoidal function that rotates associated with the lengths of the tensegrity, well, it adjusts the lengths of the tensegrities, in such a way that you actually get movement out of it. I mean, this isn't something that you set up as a, as a genetic algorithm experiment initially, is it? It's something that you had kind of prior tuning associated with. No, no, well, not really. I mean, in a sense, it's sort of a procedural backdrop, you could say, in which uh, the evolution could happen. You know, you've got a whole bunch of uh, mindless robots uh, that are collaborating to, to uh, create locomotion, and uh, they coordinate by accident through uh, survival of the fittest so that's uh, you know the, the the fact that they uh, the fact that they expand and construct and contract you know could be seen could be seen as procedural but uh, you know it's it's uh, it's not procedural in the sense of uh, the design of a whole bunch of algorithms to do different types of things and then sort of uh, choosing among them uh, using the genetics it's more just a, a basic backdrop and then let the genetics do the do the sort of composing and uh, create the actual results. Certainly. And we have Eric Burton on the call. Hello, Eric. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So what would you define procedural movement as being? Well, everything is... Uh, I think I started hearing the term procedural movement connected with spore and how it uh, will develop a walking animation for 
the models of the animals in it. I don't believe those animals have physics and are interacting with the world as such. If if you're talking about A-life, everything in A-life is procedurally generated from the ground up, uh, not just the motion of uh, the animals, but all their behaviors. Speaking of procedural movement in in an A-life is uh, almost redundant. That just depends on your definition of it, I think are procedurally generated in the sense that they're generated by the interaction of the GA, the, the fitness function in the environment, and uh, by the procedures that, uh, that drive each uh, animal as well. So, I mean, I think you made an important point with regards to physics, and certainly that was missing in my definition, but that is critical as well. The brains are controllers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to make the distinction, I think. I mean, my own development of Noblape, I've moved from what would be considered, I guess, procedural movement in the very, in the sense that you've defined it, which I think is probably a little weaker than I'm trying to use it in, in the conversation this evening. But I, I agree that you're right. Everything in artificial life simulation, every movement associated with artificial life is fundamentally procedural. But the thing that interests me uh, is this kind of subclass of, of simulations which really come from Carl Sims blockies on on one side, uh, Brevet, Fram sticks, these kind of things, and also Darwin at home, with regards to the idea that the the physical movement of the creatures relates to algorithms which are applied in terms of moving limbs, moving components, moving joints, moving things which are uh, visualized in the noble ape simulation up until this point the apes were not visualized specifically because of the complexity involved in the in the movement algorithms associated with the, moving the apes and the cats in terms of their limbs and joints, and particularly with regards to all the general emotive interaction that uh, Gerald seems to have a particular interest in talking about when we talk about noble ape. So the idea is that there is probably a class of simulations within artificial life, particularly, as you've noted, with regards to physics, but also with these physical things like limbs. I mean, you couldn't say, in your broadest definition you could actually say that Tierra had procedural movement but in reality the class of simulations that I'm more interested in talking about here are like I said Brevet, Framsticks, Blockies, Darwin at Home, these kind of things where the, the physical movement is represented in, in a physical form that has procedural elements but also as you've mentioned physics. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the interesting things to, that we should consider if you want to talk about uh, procedural uh, whatever in, in artificial life is, in a way, it's a measure of the degree of intelligent design. You know, you could uh, you could theoretically say, uh, you know, in Spore, for example, all sorts of movements are taken care of and, uh, and we just evolve sort of variations on the theme and the themes are very well thought out and they're all cartoony in their in their uh, in their behavior so everybody loves them you know that that was the the, the spore theme but the interesting so, thing is when the environments get more complicated you can't really intelligently design balance you can't really intelligently design for the kind of chaos that you would get into in particular artificial life simulation environments this is where the whole kind of intelligent design argument i think breaks down Whilst you can optimize, even with regards to genetic algorithms, particular kinds of movement in particular kinds of environments, there needs to be something more 
than either on one extreme intelligent design or on the other extreme genetic algorithms associated with surviving moving environments, but also surviving things like an interaction between land and water and also changing textures. I mean, the genetic algorithm that had, had swum, for example, couldn't deal with quicksand particularly well. I mean, this is the nature of the, you know, the optimization that occurs in genetic algorithms, but there is a class of movement that artificialized simulations have which could potentially also be related to either, you know, reflexive intelligence to the cusp of this kind of where does intelligence actually start to exist in terms of things like balance, stability, kind of secondary sensing. I mean, it would be very difficult to write a, uh, either a genetic algorithm or a heavily intelligently designed artificial life entity that, for example, did cross-country cycling or these kind of things where the the conditions change so dramatically that the responses would need to be very sensitive in order to maintain balance characteristics. And this is the interesting thing that I see in this procedural movement class of simulations is that contemporary computation is very well designed for these kind of tuning and balancing algorithms to be applied. Now, do you understand what I'm saying in terms of this not being an intelligent design solution or a genetic algorithm solution, Gerald? Um, not exactly, no. The ability to achieve balance over an environment, it can't be de described as reflexive intelligence. It, it, it's something which exists outside the realm of reflexive intelligence. What do you mean by reflexive? You mean just uh, reacting to uh, things? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm talking about reaction time. That basically, when you ride a bike initially, when you learn to ride a bike, or when you learn to do things like surf, or when you learn to do anything that requires... This, this kind of stability over chaos, you will show the traits of reflexive intelligence very quickly. It's the ability not to have that reflexive intelligence which actually enables you to do these, these things. And there's a survival component which needs to exist in kind of complex artificial life simulation which cannot be intelligently designed through exactly that reason. Yeah, well, I may approach in Darwin at home for, for a number of things that, that may, uh, be, may belong to what you're talking about is, is just to uh, delegate it to the player. So the idea is that uh, all you do is evolve your avatar, but you don't necessarily uh, watch it develop autonomy. But you also create an environment which is very much contrived for the kind of avatars that you're creating. I mean, that's, that's part of it as well. Well, it's a particular scenario, and um, it's, it's important for me to be able to define and explain everything from the ground up to the point of uh, where the, you know, the handover is done to the, uh, to the genetic mechanism. And uh, I kind of want this all to be sort of obvious. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the case that the, uh, the geometries have evolved out of nothing. There are certain things that I had to had to create, but I stop pretty quickly, and I really try to define where it is I'm stopping. You know, something that uh, that has all sorts of joint mechanisms, it has all sorts of uh, intentional ways of, of of growing, and then once it's grown, the the movements are pre-programmed to fit with what's grown. You know, that that's that would be what I would consider more procedural, where you're uh, you're really uh, designing sections of it. You know, you're really doing a lot of intelligent design. So I try to. Uh, minimize the intelligent design I'm doing by uh, by you know, going procedural to the point of creating very very dumb building blocks that that really couldn't possibly by any stretch of the imagination achieve 
subtle things on their own, like uh, like locomotion. So these things are just you know they're just too small in scope to be able to handle the problem at hand, and then uh, make it obvious where that you know how how much design is involved getting to there, and then you know consciously stopping and uh, handing over to uh, to see what can actually evolve. So I mean I know this through through our correspondence and also discussions on Bios Live, but like many soft artificial life developers, you have a dream of actually seeing the physical reality of, a, of one of your tensegrity forms in, in reality. And I think the, the transition between soft artificial life into hard artificial life robotics in particular is very fascinating with regards to these kind of problems because if you moved a, a Darwin at home form into the real world, you could create environments that were sufficiently contrived for it to, to survive and move and these kind of things, but there would be a series of quite quite simple real-world circumstances that the forms would not be ready for. I mean, is this what you're saying fundamentally? I don't think so. I mean, in relation to real-world forms is, is, uh, is a bit of a stretch, but uh, I'd be the first one to, uh, you know, given the right materials and the right hydraulics and whatever else, I'd be the first one to climb up on an elastic interval spider, you know, that's uh, evolved its movements in the software, but then responds to my, uh, to my uh, joystick uh, movements. And you two would rule the world. I can see it now, Gerald. But I mean, I think this, this underlying idea is really central to a lot of soft artificial life. It's also what Mike Bedeau is appealing to with regards to the soft artificial life developers assisting wet artificial life, is the ability to move our simulations and software into an environment which is very real. And I think this is what interests me with regards to these kind of balance problems, these can you do it with intelligent design. My, my favorite example of this is just the wide variety of computer games that have existed, and particularly as the software developers, perhaps the ones we've created ourselves, where the interface and the interaction with the interface is never quite right. There's some kind of disconnect between the interface and, you know, the game and our interaction through that. And this, I think, is, is fundamentally the kind of clunkiness of intelligent design that when it comes to things that require non, non-reactive intelligence, things that require, you know, intelligence which is hard to describe in the context of intelligent design, of pre-programmed, of organized, of constructed then the whole thing falls apart, like the game interface kind of falls apart with regards to playing it. <clears throat> There's, you could you could find an explanation for that. I mean, in a sense, what you're trying to do then is is develop things that have some kind of autonomy. I'm sure you'd admit that. And then once these things have an autonomy, then uh, you know the question is, what's this person doing here? Certainly, and I mean, I think this is this came through when we had the medical transhumanist lady on visions of the Evo grid. I mean, this view with regards to the future, particularly with regards to kind of super intelligent machines or other entities always begs the question about, you know, will they keep us as pets? What will our what will our future role be in this context? My interest with regards to this discussion associated with procedural movement is that I think there is a quite an interesting middle ground here which can be explored within the context of artificial life, which actually kind of describes this kind of survival-like sub-intelligence that certainly folks such as Roy Plotnick and, to a lesser extent, Jeffrey Ventrella have explored with their artificial life simulations. So I think there's potentially a third class somewhere between pure GA on the, 
on one end and, and pure intelligent design on the other. In fact, I think it's probably many multi-dimensional possibilities where these two are not even, in fact, extremes, but could be the, the same thing when you have a number of intelligent designers effectively acting like selection pressure. It's a big spectrum. I mean, you can you can go all the way from, uh, you know, you can design something all the way up to the, you know, the very icing on the cake and then and then have something something like artificial life happening at, at the very top level or at the other you know the other end you could go the uh, the sort of evo grid approach where you start with the chemicals and just wait for something to happen you know simulated chemicals you, you try to create soup and see if something comes out of the soup that's really at the end of the spectrum on the other end of the spectrum it's there are lots more opportunities to um, to reach a broader community because you know people are, are drawn to it because they're they're familiar with some of the things that have been intelligently designed i think the core idea behind artificial life is just sort of is, is that you know you're you're approaching things in a kind of malthusian way you know something something exists and it's capable of copying itself so suddenly there's a whole bunch of copies of it and it fills the available space more or less. And then because of the copying and because of a, a sort of an added error in the copying, there are variations on the theme and uh, all the all the different individuals compete for, for a particular goal. That's a way of doing computing, you could say, in the future when uh, when Moore's Law has hopefully continued and, and taken its toll and given us vast amounts of memory and, and vast amounts of distributed computing power, then... Uh, you know, with with no cost, if that's if that ever does happen, then um, then you know it's potentially uh, just a, a standard computer science strategy. You know, if you've got that sort of uh, unlimited space to um, to to let the artificial life processes, uh, you know, the survival of the fittest, help you uh, create software. But that's a bit of a stretch. Well, I think the computing power is, is already here with regards to a lot of this stuff. It's just a matter of us kind of motivating algorithms that actively use the computer power in such a way that we can start exploring these issues. So, have, you, have, you, uh, have you followed the discussions about how, uh, how much energy data centers are costing? Because uh, there's, it, it's interesting, the curve of, of computer power is going up, but the ability to, uh, to feed these things with electricity is, is becoming an issue. And uh, there was, uh, I, I was listening to an IT Conversations discussion about this some time ago, and uh, there's, there's two curves going to collide quite soon you know, in, in, a, in a couple of years. There's just so much computing uh, demanded that uh, that it's it's going to be energy that's going to be the main issue for all the data centers. So I think when when you get that sort of uh, competition for uh, for resources, then you'll uh, you really find out what is uh, granted computing time and what isn't. You know, it's going to be uh, the energy costs can't really be ignored. They're they're just rising. You know, they're rising at a remarkable rate because the amount we use computing is rising at a remarkable rate. So there's there's going to be a wall hit quite soon, energy wise, apparently. Have you have you played? I don't I don't like necessarily talking about this specifically, but have you played with the Intel Atom at all? The Intel Atom, no. It's a, a very low energy processor. I don't want this to seem like a, an ad for the Intel Atom, but I mean I I've had some experience in recent weeks with it, and basically it can survive with with no power for an extraordinary amount of time. I mean my sense is, whilst you're right, I mean the, the problem is as with kind of clunker cars. 
that cheap, mass-produced, everyday accessible computing is incredibly expensive in terms of energy and the kind of call centers or what have you that are consuming all this power through computing are using the least efficient computers possible. That's without question. But I think in terms of the actual computational cost associated with an energy use and these kind of things, there are un the atom is becoming more widespread, certainly in the U.S. I mean, it's available very, very cheaply. With regards to companies like Intel, they're addressing this for those of us that want to be interested in, in this kind of issue. The main problem is, like the propagation of a wide variety of things, we have no control over you know, what decisions are made by uh, corporate entities that don't factor into these kind of considerations. The interesting thing associated with what you say in terms of extreme energy use is this is something I've tried to do my own little bit for, you know, for the past few years. And I think there are actual solutions that are coming out and, you know, have had something to do with artificial life in terms of trying to uh, turn computers into hair dryers and then turn them into light fans and now turn them into things that can exist without power or with very, very low power consumption. But I agree with you. I mean, the main problem is that we're actively producing all these machines that aren't like that that already exist, that are filling barns and, uh, you know, Bruce Damer's home and these kind of things. And, no, I mean, I, I agree fundamentally, but I think artificial life can also be part of the solution as well as part of the problem. Well, there's that uh, that you, you mentioned, you know, all the computers uh, on the client side, you could say, but, uh, but you don't see atom processors taking over the data centers quite yet. But I think in terms of cost, the cost efficiency of these kind of things is, is getting to the point where they will hopefully over the, the, the next few years. And, I mean, my hope is that these things will uh, fix themselves, although there's absolutely yeah, no indication through, through the, commerce that this the, will occur. The thing, that you have to, the thing that you have to keep in mind is the, uh, the, the exponential uh, growth in our hunger for computation. Certainly.